Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Simply Scary Podcast, Season 1, Episode 14. I'm your Master of Ceremonies, G.M. Danielson. Before we begin our first tale... I'd like to personally invite each and every one of you to stay tuned after our third story for some very special announcements where we'll be providing information about our foray into an animated series and how you can help bring that nightmare to life. And now, without further ado, allow me to walk you down a truly dark corridor. When we think of what it means to be imprisoned, we imagine the tangible. Stone walls, iron bars, armed guards. Yet these are not the true keys to apprehension and imprisonment. In fact, we submit that the best way to confine a person may be through coercion, fear, and intimidation. What better way to accomplish these goals than violating the laws of nature to manipulate the situation supernaturally, thereby confusing your prey and prohibiting them from comprehending 
what is happening around them. Thusly, the creepy concoctions we've assembled for this episode are devoted to that very pretense, a terrifying recipe for paranormal imprisonment. Let us cut to your quick by careening into our first misdemeanor. Our first allegory of incarceration gives us a view into the world of a free man, liberated and oblivious. Someone who is not so free begins sending mysterious yet disturbing correspondences from prison. There are questions surrounding the reason for the letters and regarding their origin and something feels decidedly wrong about the unassuming yet still unsettling messenger and his daily deliveries. As our recipient unravels these riddles, he may well unleash something that was better off constrained. John Evans performs Andrew Harmon's Letters from Prison. Maybe I allowed myself to be disarmed by the fact that he came at three in the afternoon. He knocked very softly for a man of his stature, hulking as he was at six foot four with wide shoulders and big hairy knuckles. When I asked how I could help him, he reached into his coat pocket, withdrew an envelope, and held it out to me. Who wears a coat in August? I took the envelope and looked it over. Its face was stamped over several times with information for the St. Louis Correctional Facility. A letter from prison. Great. I didn't know anyone in prison. Then I noticed a post-it note paperclip to the back of the envelope. It read simply, Please allow the courier to be present to witness the reading of this letter. I looked up at the man towering over me on the porch. Though he was large, he didn't appear threatening. If anything, his calm smile made me think he might be rather friendly. I asked if he had any clue about the contents of the letter or why his presence was necessary for the reading. But the tall man shrugged and gestured towards the foyer. I nodded and invited him in. In the kitchen, we both sat across from one another at the table. I offered him some coffee, but he silently declined. Glancing up at him one last time... I peeled the flap back and pulled out a ten-page letter, scrawled in hasty handwriting on lined yellow paper. The letter began, You don't know me. You will likely never meet me. I am on death row at the St. Louis Correctional Facility. I was locked up for the murder of my wife and two children. Lionel was three. Macy was just six months old. I loved them dearly, but I did kill them, I will admit that first and foremost. I hate myself for it, and I rot in my cell tortured by the images of their blood dripping off my knuckles. Let me tell you my story. I looked back up at the tall man with obvious disgust on my face. His calm, soft grin didn't waver as he stared back at me. I got up to get a glass of water and then returned to the letter. The author of the letter, 
whose name I found out was Fitz Willard, had been incarcerated several weeks earlier and had begun work on his letter as soon as he had access to stationery. He never explained how he got my address or why he chose me to share his story with, but the story was brutal. Fitzwillard claimed to have been cursed. My first thought was that he suffered from schizophrenia, but he explained that he had been tested for it, and everything came back negative. He insisted that a demonic spirit was attached to him. The evil spirit taunted him and tortured his every waking moment. It whispered evil deeds in his ear as he lay in bed at night. It appeared in his reflection as he walked past mirrors. The demon was constantly suggesting cruelties and filling Fitz's brain with insecurities, phobias, and sinister ideas. Fitz's day-to-day -day life became riddled by a running commentary on the weakness of humans, the frailty of flesh, and the freedom of bloodletting. Work meetings became haunted by the demon's screeching. The spirit hissed terrible things about every face Fitz passed on the street. Still worse were the demon's thoughts on Fitz's family. He called Fitz's wife a whore, called the children ungrateful bastards. The demon told Fitz that his family didn't appreciate him and that his wife was cheating on him, that his children couldn't stand to be around him and that Fitz could never provide enough for them, that their house was a sty, that their clothes were rags, that everything Fitz had worked towards his whole life was a mediocre joke at best. For ten pages, Fitz Willard recounted the madness that crept into his psyche. The nightmares that woke him dozens of times at night. The demon made light bulbs flicker as Fitz walked under them. He made the bathtub run red like blood. Flies gathered on the mirrors. And the demon's suggestions became more and more furious. They became demands. Threats, even. Until one day, Fitz caved in. Caved in the skulls of his two infant children with his bare fists before strangling his wife of eight years so hard that he fractured the vertebrae in her neck before she finally asphyxiated. That's how he ended the first letter. The tall man stood and nodded to me in silence, and then I let him out the front door. <laughs> Needless to say, I was shaken. Why would someone decide to share such a terrible story with me? The following day, the tall man stood on my porch again, at three in the afternoon, and when I answered, he handed me the second letter. As off-putting as I found the first letter to be, I realized as I sat watching television that night that I couldn't shake the story from my head. I took the second letter and led its deliverer to the kitchen table once again. I wanted more. What best describes the nature of the second letter? Dark? Twisted? Desperate? The yellow paper was rife with drawings of forlorn figures huddled in corners and tiny bodies splayed out in pools of pencil gray. Smudges of graphite made all the little doodles appear in shadows. The second page of the letter was just one big drawing. A woman's face twisted up in suffering, her mouth hanging open and her throat packed full of maggots. Spiders wrapped up in her hair, tears whipping down from her eyes. Her hands grasped her own face, jagged nails dug into her cheeks. That second letter gave a name to the demon. Grim Deed. 
Grim Deed the Tormentor. I glanced up often from the letter to the man sitting across the table from me. Did he know the terrible tale that I was being told? Is that why it was so important that he was present when I read it? His gentle smile never faltered, never faded, as he looked idly around my kitchen. Fitz elaborated on his descent into madness, about the tearful call he made to 911 as he stood over the lifeless bodies of his family. He talked about the trial and how, even in the courtroom, Grimdeed sat behind him at the defendant's table and cursed everyone present. Grimdeed demanded that Fitz try for the bailiff's gun at the conclusion of the trial, and Fitz did. This led to a brief beating. Grimdeed said that Fitz should stand at the door of his cell, screaming profanity and threatening the guards. This led to a longer beating. Grimdeed told Fitz to spit at the judge the next day at trial, and as defeated as Fitz's poor conscience was by the demon's constant influence, he did. The letter ended with another drawing, this time of the whole courtroom strewn with slaughtered lawyers and the judge hung above his stand. All of it was in the smeared gray of pencil lead with grimy fingerprints pressed into yellow paper. On the third day, I was sitting at the bottom step just inside my door waiting for three o'clock. Right on time, the courier arrived, and without a word between us, I let him walk through the door. He set the third letter on the kitchen table and sat down. His smile was brighter today, wider than usual. I suspected from his demeanor that he had just delivered the final letter. I peeled the envelope open and sat with a steaming coffee at my elbow. In his third letter, Fitz talked about his days in prison. How, even during his incarceration, Grimdeed the Tormentor haunted him. He described how slow the death penalty took, how he may die of old age in his prison cell long before an execution date was set. His penmanship became a barely legible scribble. His writing was frantic. He was a rat trapped in a cage, constantly prodded by the cruel musings of Grimdeed the Tormentor. Fitz's sanity had long since abandoned him. He doodled himself smearing what appeared to be feces on the walls of his cell with his hands. Fitz said he was thinking about ripping his ears off, in hopes that he would deafen himself and escape Grimdeed's whispers. The yellow pages had stains on them from Fitz's tears. He apologized for that. Then, on the last page, a spark of hope. As if Fitz had stopped and gathered himself, his handwriting once again became clean and clear. The last lines read, Grim Deed has grown bored with me. Being locked up like this, I can't do much evil worthy of him. He told me how to end my curse. Well, no, the curse never ends, exactly. This is why I'm writing to you. Pass the curse along to its next victim. But since I still have a sliver of humanity left in me, I'll at least tell you how it's done. You make someone else pick up Grimdeed's curse the same way I did, by inviting him into your home three times. My heart froze. I didn't dare to breathe as I looked up from Fitz's taunting signature at the end of the letter to find the tall man staring into my eyes. His eyes 
were in endless black. That cruel grin was wider than ever. Set flame to the litter. Grimdeed demanded. Don't shoot the messenger, the old saying goes. But as we are wont to remind you on the Simply Scary podcast, make no assumptions that the messenger is benign either. Before we become acquainted with our next tale, let us share a brief important message that we promise will not be so harrowing. Or will it? Do you think you've got a story which has what it takes to be featured on our broadcast? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash submit dash a dash story and we'll see if you've really written a tale that will haunt our audience long after we finish telling it. If you are an author and would like a professional audio adaptation of a body of work you have created, reach out to us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and we can set up a free consultation to explore how we can help you to reach a whole new audience. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, listeners, it's time for you to get scared straight. Our next tale centers on a man who lost his freedom many years ago. His non-violent crime thrust him into a world where he feared he could not make it. In a prison with a particularly violent history, whose victims stay unquiet long after they've died. Enrique Couto recounts for us Seamus Coffey's story, Why I Was Released From Prison. On February 12th of 2002, I was convicted of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986 and nearly two dozen other related crimes. I was sentenced to 20 years in a maximum security prison. On June 2nd of 2002, I was released from prison and sent on my way. I was not placed on probation or parole. Those not intimately familiar with my case might scoff at the above statements, but they are completely factual. 
It is the events that occurred during that four-month period that are the reason my sentence was commuted and I was sent home. I arrived at the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri on February 13th of 2002 at roughly 9 in the morning. The two U.S. Marshals who delivered me handed the intake officer a stack of paperwork and signed a form before leaving me in the care of the Bureau of Prisons. I was 18 years old and wet behind the ears. I had a lengthy juvenile record, but this was the big leagues. A guard read through my intake form and said, Hacker, huh? You a homo or something? I replied, No, of, of course not. He laughed. If you're a homo, you should tell me now. Homos go to a special cell block. He proceeded to do a cavity search and corralled me into a shower where he sprayed me with a hose and then issued me my prisoner uniform, shoes, belt, hygiene supplies, a towel, blanket, and a badge with my prisoner number on it. I was lucky. I had been assigned to C Block. C Block had private rooms and a common area. My room was a 10 foot by 6 foot cell that had a single bunk, a jail toilet with a sink in the basin, and a locker that served as a nightstand and a table. There was a camera in the upper left hand corner over this 3 inch thick steel door with a single tempered glass window at just about eye level. Okay, so now that I've given you an idea of what kind of place I was at, let me get down to brass tacks. This was a giant stone building where every imaginable evil was committed on a daily basis for the better part of 70 years by the time I'd got there. I'm not asking you to believe in ghosts, but that prison is haunted. Inmates would report hearing rustling noises outside their doors or knocking on the walls behind their cells. Nearly everyone on C-Block had a story about Old Jim. Old Jim was a guard during the riot of 1941. Legend has it he turned the corner onto C-Block and the inmates tackled him to the ground and raped him to death. Other versions of the story claim they raped him and then stabbed him. The point is, he died horribly. On some nights, when we were supposed to be asleep, we'd stand at our meal flaps and have conversations through the crack. Every now and then we'd hear keys jingling and footsteps in the hall. If anyone was brave enough to look up, they'd see nothing, if they were lucky. Anyone that reported to have looked Old Jim in the eyes was called a liar. As the story goes, if you look Old Jim in the eyes, he'll come to your cell and kill you. More than one inmate had been found mutilated in their cell over the years. Even with the cameras in place, there was no evidence that anyone had been in the cell aside from the victim. We traded Old Jim sightings like campfire stories, but he was far from the only ghost. My cell in particular was especially terrifying. Unlike most cells, I had a grate in my ceiling. It had been bolted up with mesh wire, but that didn't stop a previous occupant from making rope out of his sheet and hanging himself. Some nights when it was dark and everyone was asleep, I'd wake up and see this guy dangling over me. I'd close my eyes as quickly as I could. I asked Sarge, one of the inmates I had developed a bit of a friendship with about it. He said that it was this Nazi guy that died in my cell back in the 50s. A nasty storm rolled in one afternoon and knocked the power out. That evening, the backup generators had gone out. C-Block was on lockdown. The guard sat in his office smoking as the rest of us were forced to do without. We could smoke on an enclosed stoop four times a day, but even the electric lighter on the wall was about useless at that point. The snoring from the end of the hall meant the guard was asleep. 
Larry was a good guy and none of us had a problem with him. He had a habit of falling asleep in most nights that wouldn't have been a problem, but the magnetic doors weren't working. The main door to the cell block still used a key, but all the interior doors had been upgraded. Larry was asleep in an unlocked office that contained a load of contraband on a cell block that housed two serial killers, a marine that went on a rampage, about a dozen killers, four terrorists, and a hacker. It did not end well for him. Tyrell was a gangbanger from Chicago convicted of killing a DEA agent. Larry had busted Tyrell several times for trying to gain entry to the hygiene cabinet in the guard office. Larry was asleep and Tyrell wasn't confined to his cell. Larry didn't even have a chance to scream. I doubt he even woke up. Tyrell grabbed Larry's nightstick and his keys. As he went for the door, we all heard a jingling noise that sent all of us back to our cells. I didn't watch, but what I heard was bad enough. Tyrell screamed and then I heard him being dragged across the floor and down the hall. His hands made wet slaps against the smooth tile as he tried to pull himself from old Jim's grip. We heard the shower come on and one final scream before the keys began jingling down the hall again. I looked up from my position crouching inside the door and saw the Nazi hanging there. I heard him say the phrase, Bernie, a former dentist and convicted serial killer, lived in the cell across the hall from me. I heard Bernie shout, but I was paralyzed with fear. It was only when I saw the Nazi clawing at his noose that I moved out of the door with my eyes to the floor and headed for the common room. By this point, everyone was screaming. Everyone, that is, except Sarge. Sarge reached out of his door and grabbed my shoulder. I would have liked to have had a heart attack right there on the spot, but he pulled me in and told me to be quiet. Sarge wasn't innocent. He openly admitted to his crimes, something that was rare in prison. While he was deployed to Iraq during Desert Storm, two men broke into his house and kidnapped his daughter. He received the news after returning from a mission. At that very moment, he went AWOL, found his way back to the States, and tracked those men down. By the time he was finished, you could have fit their remains in a shoebox. He turned himself in the next day. Sarge whispered, I think you'll be fine, but I'm done for. I whispered back, What do you mean? Huh? Sarge got close and said, All of us are lifers who deserve to be here. You fiddled with a computer, big whoop. Look, kid, my grandmother was a medicine woman and told me restless spirits can only hurt the damned. I don't think you're damned. I replied, but I'm an atheist. He laughed quietly. Does this look like a situation where it makes sense to be an atheist? I shook my head. The jingling sound was getting closer. By this point, the lights were flickering but weren't coming back on just yet. I looked up just as the lights flickered and when it went dark again, I was staring old Jim directly in the eyes. Sarge shouted at the apparition. Hey, ugly! I heard you went out crying for your mama! Old Jim turned his head towards Sarge and knocked him to the ground. He then reached down and grabbed Sarge by the leg. Sarge looked back at me, shouting, Get somewhere safe and don't open your eyes until the guards pull you out! He said this as he was dragged away. About a minute later, I heard bones crunching and Sarge screaming as I ran for the main door. The key was still in the lock. I turned it and ran to the smoking stoop. I sat there with my eyes closed for the next several hours. 
The sun came up, and with it came several guards that pulled me off the smoking stoop. I didn't respond. I was all but catatonic at that point. I had seen things no one should ever see and lived. I was moved to solitary for the better part of a week, and even still I didn't respond when questioned. It was only when I was brought to the warden that I started showing any sign of being mentally present. The warden had me brought to his office and I was put in a chair. He offered me some soda, but I didn't respond. Then he clasped his hands behind his back and walked over to his desk. After sitting down, he said, This happened back in 44 and again in 59. Before my time, mind you, but I read the reports. Never had a survivor before. Honestly, we don't know what to do with you. I looked up at him. He smiled and continued. I talked to a friend of mine with the federal prosecutor's office and he said you're a non-violent offender that broke a computer or something and made some threats. He and I had a talk with an appellate judge we know and he ruled that certain evidence in your trial should have been ruled inadmissible. I relaxed a bit more and sat back in the chair as a slight grin came to my face. The warden offered me a soda. I said, Yes, please. He then said, I believe prison should be about rehabilitation more than incarceration. A lot of the sociopaths need to be locked away, but the ones that can be reformed should be reformed. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I nodded. He continued, I can't speak to whether or not you are a sociopath. That's a job for a psychiatrist. But you survived something that has on more than one occasion killed every last inmate on that block. Someone or something decided that you should live. Who am I to argue with a higher power? He got up and turned toward the window. Tomorrow morning, a pair of marshals will drive you to an airport in St. Louis where you'll be flown to Nashville, Tennessee and released into your own custody. Your sentence has been commuted to time served without probation or parole. He paused, and I said, Thank you, sir. The warden turned around, and with an expression that looked like an equal mix of fear and sadness, he said, I try not to think about the kinds of spirits that might inhabit this place, but you saw them firsthand. The official policy when an event like this happens in a government facility is to purge the records and deny any occurrence of supernatural activity. Now, I can't stop you from telling your story, but do me a favor and wait until I'm dead. I'd rather be safe in the Lord's arms when you reveal what really happened that night. I was led back to solitary confinement and released the next morning. I've kept this story to myself for the better part of 13 years now. To this day, I jump when I hear keys jingling at night. I've gotten by this long by trying to rationalize what I saw or why I saw it, but I don't have any answers that even begin to make sense. I kept my promise, though. Warden Michaels died last week at the age of 57. Some prisons are a life sentence, no matter how many parole bargains your legal team makes. Whether released by the law or by sweet death, you carry those spirits of captivity with you. And that impounding usually means they are spiteful spirits. But enjoy a reprieve on us from this episode's confining subject matter with a short message 
for you will reoffend and be back with us momentarily to continue your sentence. That much is assured. <laughs> Nightmare fuel. We love it. We inhale it. And for your listening pleasure, we have a playlist full of it. All of our audio releases from four plus years, as found on YouTube, including standalone multicast productions and all simply scary stories and podcasts all in one place. One convenient URL that makes it easy for you to get to Nightmare Fuel. Find it online right now at www.simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash nightmare fuel. Time to check in, my little permanent residence, and it's time for the main event. Our final story doesn't concern a prison faculty per se, but a metaphorical prison of fear. Specifically, the recently noteworthy coolerophobia or fear of clowns, as well as the age-old fear of enclosed spaces. At a child's birthday party, a lad from a well-to-do family is used to having things go his way and is spoiled to that luxury. A little Lord Fondleroy, we would call him round here. But his grandparents' gift will teach him just how badly things can go for him. Caelan Scott Carter dons the mask for us in Elias Witherow's Crown the Clown. I was always a spoiled kid. My parents were wealthy and decided to spend their money smothering their only son with an incredible childhood. I had it all. My playroom was insane. A huge TV, pinball machines, and every toy you could imagine. It was awesome. Despite having so much, I wasn't a brat about it. I can say that now, having thoroughly examined my childhood. I loved to share my immense stash of stuff with my friends. I gave toys away, invited them over for pizza and movies, and was all around pretty generous. On paper, I should have been a spoiled snob. But for whatever reason, I wasn't. Good genes, I guess. On my ninth birthday, I had a bunch of my friends over. My dad rented a huge moon bounce for us and decorated our backyard with superhero apparel. I was going through a major phase. Tables were set up with punch and snacks, little finger foods to keep us from complaining until dinner. Balloons and banners were tied to every surface. My parents' way of establishing how loved I was. Music played from giant speakers my dad had set up on the back patio My friends and I ran around and jammed out while waiting our turn in the moon bounce. My grandparents arrived a couple hours into the party, bringing with them a party gift. My grandmother informed me she had purchased it at a yard sale the weekend prior. It was a giant hollow plastic clown head. 
It looked like one of those weird cheap toys from the 90s, something that was popular for a week before getting all of its units shelved. Its face was white with red circles lining the painted eyes. A smile was smeared to its lips, a big goofy grin that was also painted red. The nose was a bulbous orb of plastic that sat oddly on its face like a giant gumball. As I turned over this strange gift in my hands, my grandfather handed me a plastic gold crown. He said it was part of the game. Seeing my confusion, my grandmother laughed and explained what it was. She said I was supposed to wear the clown head while my friends attempted to sneak up and crown me. I flipped the head over and saw serrated notches lining the bald dome where the crown went. I thought it was pretty lame, but didn't want to be rude. I dutifully slid the plastic clown head over my own, the interior hard against my temples. As it settled over me, I realized I couldn't see anything. Red light filtered through the plastic, but there was a concerning lack of eye holes. My grandfather chuckled as he watched me stumble around, hands outstretched so I wouldn't bump into anything. I asked why there were no eye holes and he told me it'd be too easy for me to win the game. I had to rely on my ears to keep my friends at bay. He said the game was called Crown the Clown. I was beginning to understand the rules. It was like some weird version of pin the tail on the donkey, but with a clown and a crown instead. My friends had gathered around to watch me, and soon they were laughing and calling out for me. My grandmother tossed one of them the crown and the game began. It was surprising fun. The plastic mask got hot, but I didn't mind. I was too caught up in keeping my friends away from me and the crown off my head. After 20 minutes passed and still no one had managed to get me, I was laughing and stumbling around, doing my best not to bump into anything. My friend John was calling out to me, and I didn't know if he had the crown or if he was trying to distract me. Turns out, he was trying to distract me. I suddenly felt something click over my head, followed by a great cheer from my friends. I had finally been crowned. Smiling despite my defeat, I went to take the big plastic head off me, but found that I couldn't. The neck hole was suddenly smaller curling tight under my chin and biting into my skin. I tugged harder, trying not to panic. The air inside the head had already grown thick. I wrapped my fingers around the base of the head, pulling up as hard as I could. I felt rough edges cut into me, and I immediately stopped. I could hear my friends laughing at me. I'm sure I looked ridiculous, but at that time, I didn't find any humor in the situation. Sweat dripped into my eyes and I blinked against the burning sensation. My breath blew back at me from the tight walls of the head, the red light filtering through the eye paint making me dizzy and disoriented. I was suddenly very aware of how claustrophobic the clown head was. I called out for someone to help me, doing my best to keep panic from my voice. Still laughing, one of my friends came to my aid. I felt his hands around my ears and suddenly I screamed as he jerked upward. Pain exploded around my face and I shoved him away from me, panting. Why couldn't I get this thing off me? It had been so easy to put on, sliding comfortable over my head with little room to spare. 
but now everything was squishing in on me, the opening flush against my throat. I suddenly realized my nose was bent against the plastic, bent painfully to the right. I then understood what was happening. The clown head was shrinking. I screamed for someone to get my dad, sweat pouring from my face. The head stunk, and the combination of unfiltered breath and sweat made me lightheaded. My throat was parched, but my lips were lined with perspiration. I felt the burning fingers of claustrophobia wrap around my mind. The head squeezed a little tighter. I screamed again for my dad, my vision obscured by the head. I suddenly heard him in the front of me and felt his hands trace the outer surface of my prison. His voice changed from amusement to worry in a matter of seconds, and that scared me even more. I tried tugging at the head again, yelling into the plastic dome, explaining that it was getting tighter and tighter. My dad heard the panic in my voice, and I felt him uselessly struggle to remove my source of agony. His fingers traced the now-compressed opening at the bottom. He tried to slide his fingers between the lip of the base and my skin, but just ended up choking and gagging me as his knuckles burrowed into my throat. The clown head's grip on my head tightened further. I wheezed and sunk to my knees, the heat and lack of oxygen causing my head to swim. My dad was yelling at my friends, instructing them to go retrieve something from the woodshed. I didn't hear much, instead concentrating on my breathing. My head throbbed as the hard plastic compressed my skull like a grape waiting to pop. I heard my mom's concerned voice, a shrill inquiry that my dad ignored. I felt his fingers try to pry the head off my throat again. He could tell I was fading. Panic cracked his voice as he yelled at my friends to hurry. His fingers were back at my throat, digging desperately, trying to give me some kind of relief. I knelt before him, swaying slightly and sucking in hot, stinking air. Suddenly, my father tried to jam his hand further in, and I felt my gag reflex engage and my stomach rolled as I dry-retched into the hot plastic. My body hitched, and I felt another wave coming. I tried to fight it, but it was like trying to stop a train. I vomited into the mask, regurgitated soda and pretzels gushing into the tight space. I gasped, and the smell alone brought another gout rocketing from my lips. It sloshed around my face, filled my ears, the hot bile splashing against my skin with nowhere to go. It was trapped inside the head along with me, and I was drowning in it. It came to just above my nostrils, a slimy yellow line below my eyes. My father heard me gurgling inside the head and quickly laid me on my back, the vomit pouring around my ears and giving me a pocket to breathe. I gasped in the putrid air and felt the plastic tighten again, a wet, hard compress that began to fill my vision with darkness. I felt my strength begin to leave my body. My head was wrapped with an iron grip, and I didn't know how much longer I'd last in its clutches. Suddenly, my friend returned with the item my father had asked for. I heard him instructing me, his voice drowned out by the puke in my ears. He slowly turned me on my side, and I coughed and gagged against the slurping vomit. My nose felt like it was breaking against the walls of my prison. My ears burned and sweat coated my skin. I felt my father slide something cold and hard along the side of my neck, just under the lip of the head. I immediately knew what it was, a crowbar. I gripped my teeth, 
Tears pouring from my eyes as my dad apologized, his voice cracking with desperation. I howled as he applied pressure, the crowbar burrowing into my neck muscles. To my relief, I felt the mass give a little, just a slight lift that allowed some of the vomit to trickle out. Suddenly, the clown head tightened again, squeezing my skull harder than I could bear. I thrashed on the ground, screaming in agony, clawing at my head. I felt like my skull would explode from the pressure and the darkness swam closer. I heard my father instruct my friends to hold me still as he readjusted the crowbar. Sweaty hands pinned me to the earth as my head was pushed sideways. I felt my father hovering over me, the cold tongue of the crowbar licking the side of my neck. My father was apologizing over and over. I knew something bad was about to happen. My muscles bulged in revolt as my dad jammed the crowbar under the lip, digging into my skin and drawing blood. He shoved it in until I felt its hard surface resting against my cheek. I tensed, warm blood streaming down my neck across my shoulders. I heard my father whisper into my ear to brace myself. Suddenly, overwhelming pressure cut into the side of my face, and I thrashed violently, clutching and tearing out handfuls of grass as pain shot across my cheek and neck like spreading lightning. The edge of the crowbar crunched into my jaw as my father applied pressure, a last-ditch effort to remove the clown head before it killed me. Tears ran down my face, and red darkness shook my world. Puke and sweat coated my face as I tried to escape the pain. My friends held me in place and I heard one of them crying. My teeth cracked against each other as my father continued to pull upward. With a sickening popping sound, I heard my jaw break and suddenly I was taken to a level of splintering agony I didn't know existed. My tongue waggled and went numb in my mouth. I felt molar tear free from my gums tumbled across my tongue like bloody candy. I felt howling darkness rush me as it swallowed me. I felt the sudden surge of cool air as the clown head cracked and finally shattered. As I blacked out, I felt my father shaking me, clutching me in his arms. His voice faded into the nothing. I awoke in the hospital a few hours later, my face wrapped and contorted around some plastic that kept my jaw in place. I felt woozy and sick, an IV bag by my bed dripping relief into my bloodstream. My mother and father were at my side, eyes bloodshot and filled with concern. My grandparents sat on the other side of the bed, my grandmother crying. As soon as they saw I was awake, they began to apologize all at once, my father for doing what he did and my grandparents for exposing me to such horrors. Their voices all babbled into one, and I let my eyes close once again, the drugs pumping through my body, lulling me into a comfortable sleep. Thinking back on that day, I can still feel that horrible clown head, the way it smelled, the way the light filtered through the plastic, the weight of it resting across my skull. It's like one sick joke now. All these years later, now that I've recovered from the event, I can't help but feel disgusted amusement. Because you see, my jaw has never healed properly. 
There's twisted scar tissue lining my cheek where the crowbar cut into me. My jaw is in a constant state of crooked humor, like a painful half-smile, combined with the scar tissue stretching from my lips. Well, some would say I look kind of like a clown. It is such a cliché to say that clowns are generally regarded as more creepy than funny. Still, they just keep laughing and laughing, no matter how much you cry. When we return from our final short break, we will commute your sentence until the next episode. But first, you must hear the conditions for your release. Don't forget, the Simply Scary podcast may be scary, but we're also social. Find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash simply scary show or facebook.com forward slash simply scary podcast. Once you subscribe to us, you'll be notified as soon as a brand new episode has been released. The Simply Scary podcast. We love the fact that you listen to us, and the fact that you continue to is incredibly important to us. We just thought we'd make it a little easier. Speaking of the importance of our fans, this podcast's parent project, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, will soon be unveiling a Kickstarter campaign in order to fund an exciting new audio-visual project. The project is twofold. The first goal is to produce an animated graphic novel version of one of our infamous multicast immersive audio productions. The Scarecrow Corpse by Chris Mallory, featuring a performance by multi-million subscriber YouTube phenomenon, Markiplier. The project will see our already stellar audio entertainment coupled with vivid, riveting visuals, directed and animated by our resident art expert team of David Romero and Giselle Rosser. If you've been following our podcast, you have likely seen Romero's artwork already, as he brings our haunting tales to life each week with his delightfully disturbing speed paint artwork. But did you know, David Romero isn't just an illustrator, he's an animator as well. And with our animation project being led by this talented gentleman, as fan Ewan Turnbull put it on YouTube so wonderfully, horror is not just alive and well, but in good hands. We couldn't agree more. The Kickstarter to fund our first graphic novel feature goes live on Wednesday, February 16th, 2017. Our very own Valentine's Day Massacre, if you will. Should we surpass the funding needed to produce this first graphic novel adaptation, something very, very exciting indeed will happen afterwards. Stretch goals will be introduced, which will allow you, the listeners, to decide 
how many additional stories will get animated in this fashion. And if we generate enough funds, not only will the graphic novel adaptation happen, but we will be able to begin work on our ultimate project. The production of a 30-minute long pilot episode of the first ever fully animated horror series. With funding for the full pilot, we endeavor to create the beginning of a television quality dramatic program suitable for pitching to studios such as Netflix, Hulu, Amazon and the like, or for release directly to fans. Our animated series won't just be horrifying. It will also be innovative and interactive, featuring brand new tales submitted by you, the members of our audience, as well as chilling tomes from some of your favorite previously featured authors. You can find out more information now at chillingtalesfordarknight.com forward slash animated and be sure to subscribe to the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel where frequent information will be released beginning this month. You can also support our unique brand of thrilling entertainment by visiting chillingtalesfordarknights.com forward slash tour and signing up to be a patron of our withering wares, getting you access to features you will get nowhere else. Every membership counts toward helping us make your nights more chilling and much darker. So share us with everyone you know. Plus, a patron's membership would make a great gift for that little goblin on your list this holiday. Now, speaking of membership privileges, it's time for us to award this episode's iTunes reviewer. That lucky commenter is none other than... I.B. Noob. I.B. Noob writes, I've traveled quite a bit to get to my work and home, and I appreciate great storytelling, especially in the genre of horror. You guys make my daily drive about worthwhile. Thank you, and keep up the great work. We certainly will, I.B. Noob. That's the kind of encouragement that keeps us going and chewing on those zombie jerky that we have stored in the back room, even when the stories and miserable conditions leave us shaking. Thank you so much for leaving it. IB Noob will need you to send a screenshot of your iTunes profile page with screen name and review pictured to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com. And if you would like to have your 15 minutes of fame on the Simply Scary Podcast, be sure to subscribe to Simply Scary on iTunes and leave us a review, preferably with five stars. It makes us so giddy, Jesse gives the interns extra lashes. Uh, But this is GM Danielson, thanking you for joining us for this most claustrophobic episode. Remember, listeners, life is its own special kind of prison, and there are plenty of fellow inmates around that would love to set you free. We will see you next time when we show you there is nothing simple about being scared. Unless, of course, it is the Simply Scary Podcast.
This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment, LLC, 2016. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.